working through a sermon series called Heaven on Earth. The big idea being is that God's plan is that local churches would be heaven on earth. This is his plan, that his presence through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus would be on earth through the church and especially manifested through local churches, believers getting together to worship him and obey him together. And one of the things I promised I'd do is that every time we start a message, we'd read through 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. I also promised that I'd try to keep the messages short. Does anybody remember that? My conscience, my conscience has been telling me I've not been doing a good job of this. My conscience is what I call Jackie sometimes. It's just <laughs> easier on my ego. I just want to tell you, I am really trying to keep them short for the sake of the kids, but this is one area where I fail miserably to keep it short. So I had a really bad Sunday that one time I cleared 50 minutes. I just felt horrible. But last week, I think I got through in about 36, which is a real accomplishment, and we'll try how we do this morning. All right, let's read this. And this time I tweaked this passage just by adding for sinners after the word love, because if we don't have love for sinners, we're not very godlike. The only reason anybody's saved is because God chose to love sinners. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. Every single person daily gives God reasons to not want us because we don't trust him and we sin against him. And so all of salvation is a holy God loving sinners by sending his son to die for us and sending his spirit to change our hearts, to change how we think so that we'll see God as wonderful instead of terrible. So all of salvation and being a Christian is being loved by a God who loves sinners. So let's just add those words in and hear the word of God from that perspective this morning. Amen? I'm going to count us down. Three, two, one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love for sinners, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love for sinners, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love for sinners, I gain nothing. Love for sinners is patient and kind. Love for sinners does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love for sinners bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love for sinners never ends. You know what? Jesus' love for this sinner is never going to end because of the cross of Christ and God's grace. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Father, I pray that the presence of God would come by the Holy Spirit together. And Father, I pray you bless each one of our kids here. Would you make something happen this morning that will impact their lives? And Father, for um, those of us who are going to be tag-teaming, listening to the message as well as directing or parenting, God, would you give them an extra measure of grace and capability and faith just to do it, knowing that you're with them? And Father, would you change our lives and impact eternity through the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said...
Amen. Today, the title of our message is Big Jesus Equals Small Judgment. Big Jesus Equals Small Judgment. Um, This is something I know that's true. You're all terrible people. Uh, Nobody likes you. You're ugly. You're pretty much worthless. If you disappeared, nobody would notice. And... um, and this, this is probably just one of the worst churches ever, and the church in itself is, is a terrible thing, and everyone should stop being Christians, and, and what a waste of time we are, and you are. You're welcome. Right? Did anybody enjoy that? No, even though you know I don't mean one word of it, it still feels terrible, doesn't it? Uh, feeling judged and condemned is, is one of the worst feelings that we have in life. And because of that, we want to do something about it, right? We want to avoid it. We want to get rid of it. We want to do something about it. And so it's one of these big problems. Feeling judged, feeling condemned, worrying about being judged, worrying about being condemned. These, these feelings control our lives. And it's an issue. And it's an issue for everybody who's living and it's an issue in the church. And this passage we're going to read today is from uh, 1 Corinthians, and it's the Apostle Paul addressing being judged by people, but particularly by people who don't really know God well. And I just want to see how Paul responds to this, because we need to be able to be like Paul in life. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to need to be able to respond in a godly way to ungodly judgment. Amen? 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 Okay, and so I'm sorry for what I said. I know I hurt somebody. Just saying that, right? I tr- somebody is triggered. You know, uh, the the Pokemon Trigglypoof is in the room right now, ready to just throw one of these chairs at me, which is fine because we're getting new chairs, so whatever. But uh, um, aren't you hurt by people's judgment? Aren't you afraid by pe- about people's judgment? Or aren't you ready to punch someone in the face if they might judge you? Amen? Okay, so we actually need to uh, walk with Paul in this thing. Now, before we get there, I like saying before we get there, I want to just review really quickly where we've been so far, because I'm trying to build a case here. This whole book of 1 Corinthians is about the Apostle Paul trying to get Christians to know who they are so they can be heaven on earth. And he's just dealing with a long list of issues. And so I'm just working through... um, issues, but I'm building a description of what heaven on earth looks like. In our first message, we talked about heaven on earth is where people actually love the church. They actually love their local church and want the good of their local church. And it's very easy to not love the church, to want to use the church, to evaluate your local church by what they've done for you lately and how they've come up short. It's very natural and easy, but it's not heaven on earth. And I want to just particularly say, if you grew up in a Mennonite background or an old-school Mennonite church, my experience, just listening to people, that's not my background. I was saved when I was like 18, so I didn't grow up in any church. But my experience listening to people is that there is a lot of experience of growing up under legalism, harsh criticism, and hypocrisy, meaning you grew up in a church where you just knew that you had to act and look a certain way or someone was going to yell at you. But at home, everybody knew nobody lived like they were pretending on Sunday. And that kind of experience can make people poisoned against the church, right? Why would I want to be a part of a local church when it's all just a bunch of hypocrites? 
I just want to say to that that the only way to really respond to Christian hypocrisy is to not be a hypocrite yourself. Okay? The only way to respond to Christian hypocrisy is to you yourself actually follow Jesus with faith and obedience. Amen? And that's what we learned from Paul. Paul is hated by this church, and large portions of the Christians in Corinth want to get rid of him. And he doesn't just say, well, I'm out of here then, you bunch of hypocrites. You, my failed church, you bunch of losers. I raised people from the dead. Why am I going to waste my time with you? Instead, he responds by acting like Jesus is raised from the dead. He shows us exactly what true Christianity looks like in the face of Christian hypocrisy. He loves his church. And the next thing we talked about is that um, heaven on earth looks like people rejecting being divided over worldly ideas and finding unity in Christ. And this was that message called, I wish that I could be like the cool kids. This church is just dividing under who's the coolest preacher, who's the coolest pastor, are you, which, which podcasts are you listening to? Sorry, podcast people. Um, you can still listen to them. But, and he just calls everyone to reject being divided over things that don't matter and just be a church in Jesus. And just remember that you actually have to be a loser to be a Christian. You have to believe that the king of the world is this guy who got executed 2,000 years ago. You have to believe that. You have to think, yeah, the, the ruler of the world is this guy who got executed. Well, did he put up a fight? How was his kung fu moves? Did he get taken down by gunfire after he chopped off an Urukai's head? No, no, he just actually just took it and got beaten up and then died and did nothing. Yeah, that's God. Let's worship him now. Like, that's foolishness, right? So why would anybody want to appear wise in the eyes of the world when God himself is foolish? And the next we said that heaven on earth is where God the Father is raising up God the godly fathers. This is what he does. When God is working in a people, he is knocking on men's shoulders saying, are you going to take responsibility for yourself and other people? Are you going to stop complaining and do what it takes for other people to thrive around you? Hello, hello, this is all I do. You know, God the Father saying, I don't gain anything from saving sinners. I don't need anything. I don't gain anything. I just want to make other people's lives better by suffering. That's what the God the Father is like. And he's tapping on all of our shoulders saying, men, are you ready to take responsibility for a church and stop complaining and stop having excuses and just take responsibility and suffer so that everybody else can be growing up and becoming the people who they're meant to be? So should we tap out now? Are we going to, everybody's, <laughs> wait, don't worry, it's going to get worse. And then we talked about how the Spirit of God corrects our minds. Heaven on earth is where people have actually had their minds changed by the Spirit of God to believe this book because it is true. And the more we think like God, the more we act and feel like God. And heaven on earth is where people agree with the Holy Spirit. And today I want to say that heaven on earth is where people give up being bullied by worldly judgment. That's my last, last point. Heaven on earth is where people give up being bullied by worldly unbelieving judgments. You just quit on it. No, I'm, not, I'm not going to get bullied anymore. And so let's read a passage where Paul says this exact thing. Remember, this church is judging him, and many Christians don't want him to be their apostle or leader anymore. And this is how he responds. I'm going to read this out loud. You don't have to. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, meaning the truths of the gospel. 
Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Boo, 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 boo. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that does not mean I'm acquitted. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, this, according to Paul, is the remedy for being afraid of worldly judgment, for being controlled by worldly judgment. Can, can you take me back one slide, just quick? The remedy is this. I'm just a servant of Jesus, and I'm just here to please him. That's the cure for Paul. I am a servant of the living God. I am a servant of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I exist to be faithful to him and please him. Not anybody else. And so Paul can stand before a church who doesn't want him. And if you read Acts, he stands before proconsuls and Roman leaders who can have him killed in a minute. He stands before the Sanhedrin. And eventually he stands before the Roman emperor and he says, these are all small things to me. Because I'm just a servant of Jesus. doesn't mean it's nothing, but it's a small thing. Now, let me tell you, Christian... I have for years, I will get to, I'm reading the Bible, I'm doing my yearly thing, I'll get to this passage, and I'll read that part where Paul says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not judge myself. And I look at these words and I go, Paul, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Anybody? To live like that? I have no idea what these words even mean. It is a small thing to be judged by you. I don't even judge myself. This, these, these words, what? I, and I read it and I go, this is like trying to explain the Trinity. It's just, can you even to get there? But I think the reality is this. Paul is writing these words because he wants every single Christian in Corinth to adopt his attitude. I am just a servant of Jesus. My whole existence is I'm just supposed to be faithful to him. I don't even, like, think about him. He's like, I don't even judge myself. I don't feel guilty about anything right now, he says. I don't feel like I'm, I've done something wrong that I need to apologize for, but I don't even think that means I'm okay. Jesus will let me know. Jesus is my judge. He's so in his head, he's been set free by the Spirit to just be a servant of Christ. He's like, all I care about is what Jesus thinks of me and being faithful to the stuff he's given me to do. Right? Now, we do know people who live like this, okay? They're called hockey players. There, now I got your attention, finally. Okay, when, when the Jets get back on the ice, which I think is, you know, they've had their two weeks off over summer and because of how the season works, they should be getting back on there soon. When they're on the ice and they're doing their things 
And the other team's fans start going like this. You suck. Stop. You suck. We were at a baseball game, my wife and I, not too long ago. And there, there was one of those hecklers for the other team. You stink. You can't hit anything. And then the guy would did a, a home run and brought four people in. And so the heckler wasn't helping the, the, the walleyes, um, but they're fish. So I don't even get it. But anyhow... When the Jets are on the ice and the other team's fans are saying, we hate you, you stink, go home. Do the Jets go, oh man. Oh, oh man, they, they don't want us to be here. <laughs> oh man, and I think, I think if we actually like put the puck behind their goalie, behind that line thing into that thing that looks like a spaghetti colander, that they'd actually be upset about that. What are we going to do? Hey, you're, you're from like Russia, right? Like how, how do Russian people deal with this? No, we can't involve the mafia. No, it's just, we're just going to be here. <laughs> Sorry, that's a joke. Too much American politics in the news. They know it's their job to not care what the other team's fans think because they're there to please their own fans by winning, right? So we know it works like this. We're on Team Jesus. It's actually our job to not care what the other team thinks. Not in a rude way, but in a love way because all that really matters is what Jesus thinks. Hello, Christian? Like he literally bought your entire life with his blood. All that matters is what Jesus thinks. And that's the cure for us. Now I've been... I'm almost, I'm almost a third of the way through my message and I've got five minutes left. So I've been talking through these messages about this, the impact of existentialism or meism, this this way of looking at the world that is so a part of everything that happens in our culture. And I want to ask the question, why are other people's judgments of us so huge to us in our culture? Because we're actually, especially as Canadians, we, we are terrible at living like we're here to please everybody we meet, right? That, that old grocery store example, you're standing in Superstore, it's one of the best stores in the world. There's like 25 feet of hot sauces that you can just look through and, and enjoy. And there's like 59 different kinds of barbecue sauces. And you're just looking at it and somebody runs their cart into you. And it's summer and you've got your flip-flops on so that you're now bleeding from the ankle. And what do we say? Sorry. Right? I'm sorry. I hope you're not squeamish about blood. I seem to be bleeding in front of you now. So we're particularly bad at being overwhelmed and overcome by other people's opinions and judgments of us. And I want to just say, I think this is in part due to the controlling ideas of our culture of existentialism. Existentialism or me-ism, it starts off by saying there is no God and there is no inherent meaning or purpose or right and wrong in the world because there's no God to say before everybody, that's right, that's wrong. Right and wrong is just whoever has the biggest gun. 
But what existentialism says is, because there's no God, you get to decide, and you have to decide. What are you? You decide. What do you want to do with your life? That's your decision and nobody else's. What's right for you? That's you decide. And we tell each other all the time, you get to decide, you get to decide, you get to decide, you get to decide. And the, the promise is that if you get to do all these decidings, what's right for you? What does it mean to be a Canadian, a Christian, a man or a woman, uh, success or failure, right and wrong? You decide, you decide, you decide. The promise is that if you get to make all these decisions, you'll get to have the life you want. Well, God's reality is different. God is real and God gives importance and meaning to everything and he's the judge. And we're called on him to believe in him and be transformed, not to just decide what our life is, but we're transformed by God and that this life is not a life where we're promised where we can get everything we want, but instead we're promised that this life is going to be so hard, but God is going to be with us and will ultimately give us eternal life as we're faithful to him. But this meism, what does it do when, the, when there's a promise that you get to decide who you are and you'll get the life you want, it it seems like we get to pick. We get to be the bosses of our life. But you know what it actually does? It makes it so that everybody around you has to confirm the truth of what you're deciding about yourself. Right? We actually put ourselves in a, vision, in, in a situation where the only confirmation we'll get that we, our decisions matter is by getting everybody else to confirm our decisions. Right? Okay, Charles, I'm going to bore you for a sec. Come, come up here. You don't have to do anything but look handsome, so stand here. Okay. Here's an example of meism in action. Okay. In order for me to actually feel good about myself, I, I, maybe even that, I don't, need it. I don't need to feel good about myself. I'm a strong man. Strong, strong man. But I decided, I identify as the tallest guy in the room. I think it's right. I think it's fair. I've got a pulpit. I've got a microphone. It only seems right to me that I should also be the tallest guy in the room. Well, Charles, I am the tallest guy in the room. No, Charles, you don't understand. The life I want, the life I need, the true me, is the tallest guy in the room. Yeah. That's not true. What? <laughs> Charles, you're attacking my very existence. So I should do like that? Thank you. No, no, no. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Whew, that was a close one. All right. Yeah, you're doing great. Just keep it up. I feel better. <laughs> you can go sit down now. Okay, everybody give Charles a clap. Now, we're kind of being silly and we're kind of joking, but we know the world runs like this. Everybody is obligated to make me feel like my decisions about myself are true. Or else. And it's very chaotic and very divisive and very painful. And so what happens when you live in the world where we are actually dependent on everybody else to confirm our decisions is right and then Facebook and Twitter make us 
impacted by even more people. We respond in lots of different ways. Three ways that I'm going to just identify quickly here, and maybe you can see this happening in your life or somebody else's, and love yourself or others in response. I call it an avacaholic, a pity drunk, or a scrap addict. Okay, so none of these are healthy things, but I think it can happen. Okay, what is an avacaholic? AVAC for me stands for um, acceptance, validation, affirmation, celebration. This is the progression of people in our lives. When you're a meist and you, people exist to confirm what you feel about yourself or believe about yourself, the number one, they need to accept you for who you are. Number two, their job is to validate you and tell you that your decisions are right. Number three, they need to affirm you and not only tell you your decisions are right, but that they're good and awesome and making their lives better. And number four, they need to celebrate you. Right? Do I need to make an example of you as well? I heard a scoff out there. My empire is crumbling! Acceptance. Thank you. Somebody's working with me here. Yeah, you'll get those, that candy afterwards. I promise your mom and dad will give it to you. Acceptance, validation, affirmation, and celebration. If we're meists, we think that the world should look like this and feel like this and work like this. And when this doesn't happen, you know how we respond? Rage, attack, destroy, slander, accuse. If you won't be part of me achieving the life I know I deserve, you are dead to me. And I will do everything I can to destroy you because you're attacking my very existence. Yikes! What a not blessing to raise up young people to think like this. What a hamstring. What a, what a like brain tumor to put into people. And we can live like this. We can come to church or a marriage and expect that this to be our feelings. No, you're supposed to first accept me and then you're supposed to validate me and then you're supposed to celebrate me and then you're supposed to, sorry, affirm and then celebrate. And I need this or I'm dead. This is what I need. But the reality is, is God has provided something so much better than just human beings going through the motions for you. In Christ, we're given justification, which means that God himself has said, because you believe in Jesus, you are perfectly righteous in my sight. I give it to you as a free gift, and I now accept you as one of my own children, righteous before me, and I pledge myself to be your God and to be faithful to you and to see you through this life and to bring you home. Your sins are forgiven, your faults are forgotten, and you are mine. The God of heaven and earth himself justifies us through faith in Jesus Christ in such a way that if any human being would stand to condemn us, they're wrong and God is not happy with them. We were there in Romans 8, remember a few months ago? If God is for us, who could condemn us? And it's a free gift. Before you meet anybody, when you wake up in the morning, if you're believing in Jesus, he's justified you as a free gift that he doesn't want to take away. 
And he already had all the reasons not to give it to you before you were born. He knew everything bad you were ever going to do. Just your most horrible day where you might hate and loathe yourself. God saw that day before he ever even formed you in your parents' womb. And he said, by grace, I will save you by faith in my son. And I will declare you righteous. Instead of needing validation, you get a calling from God. If you're breathing, you're here for a purpose. God has a mission and a plan for you. He's a calling to make you useful. He's a calling to make you fruitful. He's a calling to help you do stuff so he can reward you at the end of time for it. Why would you need someone to tell you you're doing good when God himself is like, you're working for me. He gives us encouragement by the Holy Spirit and he doesn't just promise us people to celebrate us, which can be encouraging sometimes, but he promised us when Jesus the Lord returns, you will appear with him in glory. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but as my understanding is that as God is so generous with us, when Jesus comes back, shining like the sun in his blazing white royal robes, We're going to look at each other and be like, wow, you look like you have as much glory as Jesus. Well, you look like you have as much glory. That we are going to be glorified by God himself in front of all of his angels and all of the universe. That's your inheritance. Somebody needs to make me some sweet, like, bionic arms. You should call Mark Rober and be like, my pastor does this a lot. Can you help him get some air? That would be cool. The avacaholic, I need the acceptance. I need the validation. I need the approbation. I need the celebration. Look, I'm not talking about a church where you don't get any friendship from anybody. And I'm not saying we should all go home and be like, I'm not going to say anything nice to you because I don't want to feed the beast but I think each one of us should say, God, I want your, your thoughts and your justification, your love, your calling to be a billion times more important than what I could get from anybody else. Would you do that miracle in my soul? Amen? Okay, the pity drunk. I've been waiting a long time to talk about this because this is my affliction. The pity drunk is somebody who has kind of wanted everybody around them to do the AVAC thing, but now they, but they aren't convinced they're worthy of it. So instead of expecting to be celebrated, they expect to be a failure and to be um, dismissed. And they respond to life um, by, by pity, by self-pity. Their main conviction is, even if I try, I failed or will fail. And mainly, they're just, we're just looking for people who will help us feel okay in our failure right? The world's revolved around me. I've decided who I wanted to be, but I can't live up to it. I can't do it. And so I just feel like a failure. And now I just want friends who are okay with me being a failure and will help me feel okay about being a failure. And we'll just be, be fails together. And we'll just pity each other. That's all we want out of life is, is a little pity. Now, pity is a great thing. And we live by the mercy and pities of God, but we're not meant to be pity drunks who just stay there. And one of the ways you can tell if you're a pity drunk, this is my experience, is that when somebody loves you and believes that you can be more than you are right now, and they're like, why are you just standing around feeling sorry for yourself? Why don't you get up and do something for Jesus? Don't you have the Holy Spirit? You actually get mad at them. No, that's not what he's looking for. I just want you to pat me on the back and tell me I'm okay. And it's okay if I never change. That's not, I wasn't looking for actual change. 
Don't tell me I'm actually really a Christian filled with the Spirit and can overcome stuff by the grace of God. Don't tell me that. You destroy my worldview. Paul actually shows us how we can deal with this exact kind of thinking. He demonstrates how to be a sinner full of faith in this book and two other places. And I just want to read some of Paul's examples to us, okay? And this is, here's the next interactive portion, okay? I want you to listen and you're going to say, what does Paul say bad about himself? And then what else does he say? Okay? Paul, in each one of these passages, God, Paul's going to say something bad about himself and then he's going to say a bunch of other stuff, Okay? And if you get this one right, then that kid's parents will buy you candy as well. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 7. He's talking about how he became an apostle, last of all, to Jesus. He said, Then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Jesus met Paul on the Damascus road and made him apostle. And he says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Okay? But is he a pity drunk? No. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Boom. There's passage number one. Let's go to Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which is given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And he goes on from there. Let's do it one more time. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who gave, has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his surface. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, For I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to everyone who would believe in him for eternal life. Okay, if you played the game, this is what he does. I am the least of the apostles. Okay, pity party? Anybody? I'm the, I'm the worst person in the room. Nobody likes me. This is Paul. But the grace of the Lord overflowed to me so that I work harder than any other apostle. He says, I am the least of the saints because I persecuted the church. Pity drunk, pity drunk, don't you feel sorry for me? But I was given this ministry to preach the gospel to Gentiles everywhere so that they'd know God. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, meaning that he should have been killed by God. But the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the love and faith that are in Christ Jesus so that anybody who comes to Jesus can say, how big is God's grace? It's big enough to save Paul. This is how you stop being a pity drunk. You're never allowed to say one bad thing about yourself again without a huge but. I am an angry person, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in him. 
okay, I have ruined my life, but God has chosen me to be fruitful and to do good to Him. I don't like myself. Well, join the club. But the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with me so that everybody who does not like themselves can see how much God can like somebody who does not like themselves. From now on, church, I am not messing around. I don't want to hear one person say anything bad about themselves without being a huge butthead. Meaning that in your head, you have a butt waiting to follow behind every bad thing you might say, and you have to talk about the grace of God towards you. And I am not messing around. Because I know we do this. I hear it all the time. I do this, and I did that, and I blew this, and I blew that. It's probably all true. But it's also true, the grace of God is overflowing to you in measures you could not comprehend. And will not stop. Amen. Thank you. Okay, one more. The scrap addict. Um, this is the kind of person who had set their life on living off of other people's opinions, but they got hurt by it, and now they're just ready to fight with anybody they think might be ready to judge them. Does that make sense? If you're a meist and you're living your life off of other people's opinions and judgments, and they fail you, and God's failed you, and now it's time to fight. Because I know people are going to hurt me, and so I'm ready to fight. Anytime I think I might be failing, I'm going to fight. Anytime I think someone might hurt me, I'm ready to fight. That's the scrap addict. They're ready to scrap. Anybody like this? I know you're not. Don't raise your hand. Because <laughs> then we'll have to fight. It'll be a fist, I'm sure. I'll meet you in the parking lot. Be like, yes, we will pick weeds together. And the truth is, for those of us who are at this place where any time we start to feel a little bit of correction coming, any time we start to feel some direction coming, we want to fight or run or accuse or quit, the reality is, is that God is good. He, he is good and He is ready to do good to you. He's been merciful to you all day and, his, and your entire life and He is good. You, you don't have to fight with Him anymore. I mean, come on, guys. He, he killed his son to save us. We don't have to fight with him anymore. He's good. He really is really good. We, we don't have to fight with him anymore. And instead of being ready to fight with whoever we think is robbing us of the affirmation or the, the opinions we need, we're actually called to learn to love our enemies. This is the highest form of Christian freedom in the world. People wrongly judge you, and you actually love them back. Jackie and I were reading through uh, Jesus Freaks with our kids. That book, if you've read it, Stories of Martyrs and stuff, um, it's a really good antidote to any kind of pride you might have. And there was this one story, and it was during the, the height of the persecutions of the uh, uh, Soviets in Russia as they were persecuting the church in other areas. And one of the men in prison had been taken away and beaten and sent back. And as he was given back to his cellmates, um, the cellmates looked at this guy who just looked like pulp and they started to, to curse the, the prison guards. And the guy who'd gotten beaten up said, no, please don't. Um, I need to pray for them and you're distracting me. 
And I read a story like that, and I can't unread that story because it's actually true that Jesus has brought Christians to a place where people who actually beat them up and tortured them, they actually have an overflowing pity and love to the, for their own torturers. And that, now that's my standard. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I can't unknow that, that God has brought somebody to that place. And that, so that's the standard. If we don't have an overflowing love for the people who would condemn us, we need to pray and not excuse how we respond. We need to pray. Amen? Because otherwise we'll end up scrap addicts. We'll just be ready to fight everybody for whatever reason. So I'm going to invite the team to come up, and we'll, we'll get ready to stop here. This is the truth. Thank you all for your patience and love. This is the truth. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And I know many of us regularly are, are burdened by judgment or fear of judgment. And the way out is not to try to preemptively do what you think you're going to get judged for or not do what you think you might get judged for. To be in your head working with the brain snake that tells you how you need to change. The way out is to say, I am sorry, Jesus, for not just living for you. Please forgive me. And I give myself to be your servant 100%. That's the way out. Are you with me? Does anybody want to walk out? This is the way out. So I'm, I'm judging and I'm f- afraid of judging. I'm criticizing and I'm afraid of criticism. I'm living under worldly judgment. The way out is you say, I just want to regard myself as a servant of Christ and live to be faithful to you and make my mind and heart and body follow through this. Amen? So why don't we, we can stand. You can sit if you want to. But if you want to stand, is it just a way of saying yes? We're going to pray this for ourselves. You don't have to. Okay. Father, your will is so good that if everybody in here only lived for your will, this would be heaven on earth. And God, would you, where people need to be liberated by fear of judgment or hurt from judgment, or judging we have done to those who've judged us, God, in the name of Jesus, help each one of us just get free. Friend, if you need to forgive people from your church past, I want you to be free. Why don't you just even come and say, God, I'm still angry at people I grew up with. I forgive them. I want to be free. But wherever we're at, God, would you convince us in our minds and our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit that we really are just servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, living for your opinion, living for your judgment. And Lord, help us to be like Paul where he said, I'm actually expecting Jesus to commend people when he comes, to say, good job. And Father, I pray that we would have room in our hearts to believe that you will say good job to us as we walk in faith with you.